Welcome to The Way Church. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For sermon notes, service times, and more information, check us out online at thewaychurchva.com. Now let's join Pastor Matt Rothy with this week's message. Tim and Kate were a newly married Christian couple who had a number of new beginnings in front of them. They were newly married. They had new jobs. They were living in a brand new city. They had a new home and a new baby. All of these new beginnings, everything was was looking up, was really exciting for them. Tim actually just got a brand new position in upper management at a large dairy operation. And Tim was the kind of guy who biked to work every single day. He had just finished his very first marathon. And so it was unusual that one night when Kate was getting ready to sit down for supper and she knew Tim's shift had just ended, she was surprised that he wasn't there. She sent him a quick text, gave him a call, no reply, no answer, but this wasn't unusual. She, she figured the, the typical thing had happened. Some unruly livestock had kept him longer at work that day. But an hour and then two went by, and still he didn't show. He didn't answer any of the messages either. It was getting late, so Kate took her two-year-old and, and put put him in the car seat and, and drove the two miles to the farm. There she, she saw what was going on. In, in, in the big, long pole barn, there, there was the feed truck, a massive piece of farm machinery. It, it was still running. She figured Tim was working late into the night, so she got out, walked towards him, expecting that any moment that he would peer from behind the, the truck and there with his ear-to-ear grin greet her, that's not what she saw. She rounded the backside of the truck. She saw her husband there dead as the victim of a horrific farm accident. Later on, Kate's therapist would say that the experience that she had was a lot like taking an an average citizen and and just dropping them into the middle of a bloody battlefield, a war zone with absolutely no training. And that's what she experienced. Kid had questions. Why would God allow this to happen? Why did God put this in front of me? Why doesn't God want me my family, to be happy. Kate had questions, but really just one. Why? As a pastor, I get asked a lot of questions. And my favorite questions are the questions that I can answer because God's word answers the questions. Makes my job easy. Three times this month, someone has asked me, Pastor, are are we living in the end times? Easy answer. 
Great question, clear answer. God says yes. From the time that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven until the time where he comes back to take us to be with him, Christians in every age have been living in the end times. Great question, clear answer. Oftentimes people will ask me, in maybe different ways than, than this, but they'll want to know, Pastor, what is God's will for my life? Great question, but clear answers. We talk about it. If this is something that God's word says to do, and if it's on your heart, then do it. If it's something that God says don't do and you're doing it or you're thinking about doing it, well, don't do it. And if God's word doesn't say anything about it at all, well, then you have freedom. You have freedom in Christ to think about how you're going to use your gifts to selflessly serve God by, by serving others. Great question. Clear answer. But there's that question. The question about why? Why in the face of suffering, tragedy, pain, loss, grief of all kinds? Why, God? Why? A loved one stops loving us. A relationship that we have cherished crashes and burns. We don't understand why, so we ask God, why? There's a death, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they were young or old, healthy or sick. It was expected or unexpected. We ask God, why? Why now? Feel emotionally backed into a corner. Feel like we're, we're drowning in the feelings that we're having, and we can't really find a solution out. And so we ask God, why don't you understand? Why don't you provide a solution? And so all those personal things added to the, the things going on in our world, natural disasters, a changing climate, a climate of disunity, and not to mention a global pandemic that we look at and we wonder, God, why? And if you haven't asked your pastor, you've, you've likely asked your friends or your family members, or at least in the privacy of your own thoughts, you've asked the question, why? Why God? It's a tough question, made it even more difficult by the fact that God doesn't tell us. God doesn't provide the precise details for why this or that happens. And yet that doesn't stop people from offering up their guesses. Even and especially Christians who, who know about God will often try to answer that question. They'll try to, well, explain the unexplainable by saying, well, maybe God did it for this reason, or, or I can only imagine that God has this in store. But God's word doesn't say that, so, so we can't say that. Saying that, guessing that, well, that's like thinking that we're God, like somehow we have insight into what he is thinking or what he is doing, and, and nothing could be more prideful or, or more arrogant. We're not God, and we're not soothsayers or mediums either. We're not people who can read the tea leaves of tragedy or mayhem in life and, and try to explain the events of life. It's impossible for us to seek out God's disposition towards any, any one particular person or events because he doesn't disclose that in his word. 
doesn't make you wish that Jesus was here and you, you're walking with him. You're walking with him through life and, and you could point. You could point to specific things and, and just ask him, why? Well, his disciples did walk with him and they did ask him. In John chapter nine, that we're looking at as the basis for our sermon this morning, Jesus and his disciples were walking along and they saw someone who was brokenhearted, who was blind throughout their life and was grief-stricken because of that. And they asked Jesus, why? Why did this happen? And Jesus answered them. What we're going to see in our sermon lesson this morning is Jesus provides one reason why this did not happen. The one reason why it absolutely did occur And he's going to show us two implications of you and me and all God's disciples seeing clearly the answer Jesus gives to why. One reason why things don't happen, the one reason why they do, and two implications for seeing clearly why suffering does happen is what we're going to look at this morning. And we have John chapter 9 before us, a section of God's word that beautifully illustrates all this. It begins in this way. As they went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus, why? And Jesus does give an answer, but but first he gives an answer for why things do not happen. He says this, neither this man nor his parents sinned. Now, Jesus is not saying that this man or his parents never sinned, that they had never committed one sin in their life. That would not only be contrary to what Jesus teaches throughout the rest of his life, but contrary to all of Scripture. Now, he's not saying that these people have never, ever sinned. But what he is saying is that the reason this suffering happened had nothing to do with sin. Jesus said it himself here, and this is something that all of Scripture testifies to. Romans chapter 8, perhaps the most famous section of God's Word that addresses suffering and and how the Christian should look at suffering, begins by talking about the fact that sin has nothing to do with it. Romans chapter 8, we read the last verses. The first verses begin this way. Therefore, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Just think about the significance of that. A section of God's word talking about suffering starts off by talking about the reason why you do not suffer. You don't suffer because of punishment, because of judgment, because of revenge that God is giving you for the sinful things that you do. In Christ, there is now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. That means sin, that means death. Those are non-factors in your life and in your death because of Christ Jesus. This is the reason why things do not happen right here. It is not because of your sin. Suffering from pain, bad things do not happen because of your sin. Now you see that and you think, 
Wait a second. I have plenty of suffering. I have plenty of suffering because of things that I know are bad and that I know are evil. And you're right. By nature, we are sinful. We live in a world, nature, creation, that is riddled with sin. And so naturally, sin does affect everything. There are natural consequences for sins. Think about it. Naturally, if you drink alcohol in excess every day for several years of your life, at some point, your liver is going to fall apart. It's only natural. If you're a married person and you have an extramarital affair with someone who's not your spouse, there's going to be consequences. It's only natural. This is not God punishing you for your sin of adultery or alcoholism. This is just the natural consequences of living in a sinful world. You see, what I'm comparing or or differentiating here is the natural consequences for sin and the individual consequences for sin. Bad things, suffering, pain, tragedies in your life do not come to you because God is punishing you individually for your sins. However, naturally, living in a sinful world, we suffer. Here's maybe another way of thinking about that. Let's say for a second that you do suffer for your sins. Just think about that. But maybe that's not so difficult to do because we do it all the time. We think about the people in our lives whom we have not treated as God asks us to, and we think, oh, yeah. Maybe maybe that's why that relationship isn't so strong. It's because God's punishing me. We think back on, on the week that we just had, and we think about all of the things that we did wrong, sins that we did, but we got away with. And we think, you know what? Maybe that's why things didn't go well at work. Maybe things were were stressful at home because that's what I did. You think about all the things you didn't do that God had put in front of you, great opportunities for you to love God, serve God, obey him, praise him, worship him, but you didn't do those. You think, yeah. You know what, maybe that's why I didn't get that raise. Maybe that's why I, I didn't have that opportunity to work out like I hoped. Maybe that's why I didn't get that date. It's easy for us to think that way. In fact, maybe you you do think that way. If if God punished us and, and suffering and bad things happened to us because of our sin, well, then our entire lives, we would be victims of sinfulness and everything in our lives would be purely unhappiness. It would, it would eventually crush us. It would lead us to despair. It would lead us to depression because listen to this. If God punished us for our sins, then every single thing in our life would be that. We would go from thinking, man, God really doesn't like that I did that thing to maybe God doesn't see that I'm suffering for this thing to eventually it leads you to think that, that God just doesn't care for you because you're constantly suffering. And yet we know the opposite is true. 
Think about it. If things happen to you because you sinned, you don't have a savior from sin. What you have is a judge, an executioner, a punisher. And nothing could be sadder. Because we know it's the opposite. We know that we have a savior from sin who tells us there is now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. For those of you who believe in me, there's no punishments for sin. And yet sometimes we think that bad things happen to us, that suffering and tragedy and pain happen to us because of the sins that we did. And you know what that makes us? Blind. Spiritually blind to the fact that you have a savior from sin. Things do not happen because you sin. So why, why do they happen? Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Why did it happen? Well, take it or leave it. Jesus gives an answer to that question. He says, this happened right here so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's it. There it is. The answer to the question, why? Not as thrilled as I thought you'd be. And the reason is because the natural next question is, well, what are the works of God? this happens so that the works of God are displayed, what is that? I told you I love questions that Jesus answers in his word. Just a few chapters before Jesus said this, the work of God is this, it is to believe in the one he sent. The work of God is to believe in me. So let's do some math together real quick. We have these two passages that in John 9, this happens, why? So that the work of God might be displayed in this man. Also, the work of God is to believe in the one he sent. So why did this happen? Why? Well, this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in him. This happened so that believing in the one he sent might be displayed in him. This happened so that faith in Christ might be displayed in him. This happened so that Christ might be displayed in him, might be made known in him. Do you want to know the one reason why suffering happens, why bad, tragic things happen in life? This is the reason, the one and only reason that God gives in his word. It is to draw you closer to Jesus. Things happen to draw you to him, for him to come to you and bring you closer to him so that you know him, so that Christ is displayed in you, so that you know him more wonderfully, more deeply, and know him more joyfully than ever before. That is why things happen. It's to draw you closer to Jesus. That's it. And yet that, that may be cold comfort for someone who is actually suffering. For someone who's in pain, it may seem like we're just slapping a, a Christianized version of toughen up. Toughen up, Jesus loves you. That's not what's going on here. So how is a Christian to respond to suffering? When a relationship we valued 
fails. What do we do? We grieve. When death happens, we grieve. When a number of different emotional stressors come into our life, what else can we do but grieve? When we see hatred, when we see violence, when we see natural disasters, when we see see the world seemingly falling around all around us, what do you do but grieve? You grieve these things. And yet, and yet 1 Thessalonians tells us that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Look, love and grief go hand in hand. Love and grief go hand in hand, and there is no place that makes that more clearly yet mysteriously known than a place called the place of the skull. I'm talking about Good Friday, where Jesus died on the cross, his cross, his innocent suffering and death, and yes, his also his glorious resurrection, which means there his suffering allows us to begin to make sense of our own suffering. For what you see on the cross is God, true God from true God, and yet enfleshed in humankind, enfleshed in, in skin and bones, just like you and I, so that you can know for certain that you have a God who is not distant, who is not disinterested, but a God who is close, a God who knows you, a God who suffers and has suffered for you. A God who knows your pain because he's felt pain in his own body. A God who knows very, very well what it's like to be bullied and insulted because he was bullied to the point of being bloodied. A God who knows abandonment, who knows loneliness, A God who knows what it's like to have friends and family leave him because he was forsaken like that on the cross and not just by friends or his earthly family, but by his father. He was forsaken by his God. And so he did what everyone who's ever suffered has done. He asked the question that anyone who's ever dealt with pain or grief asks. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Your God asked that question. And now are you starting to see? (laughs) Are you starting to see why his suffering allows us to make sense of our suffering? Because he asked the question, but he knew the answer. At the same moment that he asked the question about why, God, this suffering is happening, he knew the answer and what it had to be. He had to suffer in order to give you a beautiful bouquet of victory. He had to suffer in order to give you the only consolation that a suffering Savior can. That all this suffering, that all your suffering, it's for one reason and one reason alone. It's to draw you closer to me. It's so that you will be with me. It's so that you will believe in me. It's why any suffering has ever happened It's so that the work of God might be displayed in you. What is the work of God? This happens. Suffering, pain, agony happens so that believing in the Christ might be known in you and by you. 
so that faith of Christ might be displayed in you. This is the only reason that God ever gives for why suffering, pain, loss, tragedy, mayhem of any kind occurs. It is so that Christ might be displayed in you, so that Christ might draw you closer to himself and there in your heart, in your suffering, and in your life, you know that Jesus is with you. You know that Jesus has suffered for you. And so he will never be far from you. That's the reason he gives for why. And it has major implications on our lives. Here's the first. The first implication of why things happen, of why now us seeing clearly why suffering happens and understanding that it's that Jesus draws us closer to him, it is so that we will not be timid. We see that in the life of the man who used to be blind. One of the most intriguing aspects of this story is the inquisition that went on after Jesus just gave a man his sight. First, what happens is his community questions him. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him being uh, begging asked, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it on my eyes, and he told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man? They asked him. I don't know, he said. He first gets interrogated by his community, and that didn't satisfy him, so they brought him before the court, which doubled as the church. And his church questioned him. They brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had been blind. And the Pharisees, they went on to question him, and they added a whole layer of difficulty to this case because, get this, Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. Jesus did work on the Sabbath. And they didn't like that because they legalistically followed a rule that you can't do anything on the Sabbath, but Jesus gave a man sight. And so they brought in his parents. He's first asked by his community, then his church, and then a second time, they bring him in, and they say, Give glory to God by telling the truth. I'm sorry, let me back up. This one's for the son. They bring in the parents and they ask him, is this your son? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he is your son, the parents. Our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes? We don't know. And then they said this, ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. You know what his parents did by that? His own parents threw him under the bus because they were afraid of what might happen to them in their church, in their community, if they stood up for their son. So first he's questioned by his parents, his community, his church. He's thrown under the bus. And then they bring him back again. And the second time, they summon the man who had been blind and they bully him. They say, give God the glory by telling the truth. They say, we know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, 
what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciple too? Then they hurled insults at him. Not once, not twice, but three times this man is asked about what happened. Three times he's questioned and three times people tried to get him to shrink down from what he was saying, that Jesus Christ had given him sight to see and yet boldly, clearly, seeing clearly not only life for the first time, but what was going on in life, he boldly stood before this group of people and said, I don't know much. But one thing I do know, Jesus gave me sight. In the face of danger, he practically laughs. And he says, now this is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. And we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this were not from God, he could do nothing. To this, they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. I want to come back to that last sentence. But first, I want to look at the implication of seeing clearly why suffering happened to him. I want to look at what Jesus did to this man, what happened when the gospel encountered this man. He was not timid. The implication of seeing clearly that suffering happens in your life means, therefore, you and I, we are not timid. We are not afraid. First Timothy, Second Timothy puts it this way. The spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Seeing clearly that Christ suffered for you frees you to live in a way without fear. It, it gives you the power of God, the spirit of God that does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Why? Because we see in the midst of anything that we're going through that there is someone who has suffered for us so that we will be with him forever in heaven. There is someone who allows us to make sense of our suffering because he suffered for us and he is our God. Seeing clearly why suffering happens means you and I, we're not timid. So why is it that with heads down, shoulders slung forward, you're shuffling through life like timid little men? Why is it that for maybe days or, or weeks now, maybe years, you're kind of sinking into life like timid women. We blame it on our culture. We blame it on our circumstances. Maybe we even blame it on our children or, or people in our life. We maybe blame it on our careers. 
But this is remarkable. It's remarkable because we know that God has given us a spirit that does not make us timid, but gives us power and love and self-discipline. We know this because he has saved us and called us to live a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and his own grace. So why are you timid? The answer is simply that we're spiritually blind. We're spiritually blind amidst suffering when we fail to look and see that we have a Savior who in John chapter 16 says, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. We have a Savior who says, I have not only overcome this world, but in this world, in this life, I am going to give you your daily bread. I'm going to give you everything that you need for body and soul. But we're spiritually blind to that. We're spiritually blind when we look at suffering. And, and what we're talking about right now, it's the theology of the cross. It's, it's obeying Jesus who said, whoever wants to be my follower must pick up their cross and, and follow me. And we say, yeah, that's heavy. That hurts. I don't want to do that. It makes me weaker. I don't want to be weak. And yet what we failed to see is that the cross, Christ, that doesn't make us weak, we are weak. And when we're weak, we're strong. The Apostle Paul put it like this. He said this. He said, my grace, God talking to Paul said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Because of Christ and seeing clearly why we suffer, that is that Christ draws us to himself, means that we do not have to be timid when we face persecutions of any kind. But instead, we can look at whatever life throws us and say, bring it on, bring it Come what may, come persecution or hardships, called depression or death, come darkness or a pandemic, bring it on. Satan, do your worst. Death, do your worst, because there is nothing that can crush me. Because when I am weak, then I am strong, because Christ suffered for me and has brought me to be with him. That's the first implication of Christ's suffering. It's that it's that seeing his suffering clearly and why we suffer means that you and I are not timid. The great Christian philosopher Kanye West said it this way. He said, they say the weak starts on Monday, but the strong start on Sunday. What he's talking about is you, church. He's talking about you and I coming to the place, God's word and sacrament, the place where God draws us to himself and there in him finding strength, finding courage, finding all that he gives us in Christ. The blind man was timid. He was not timid. He was rather brave. And for that, they threw him out. They threw him out. And Jesus had heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, 
you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard this and they asked, what, are we too blind? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sins. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Back in the day, pre-COVID, you want to know what one of my favorite things were? When people would get together and when, when people would start to crowd, one of my favorite things was when someone surprised a friend in the crowd, you know, ran up behind him and tapped him on the shoulder. It's one of my favorite things. I love it when it happens to me. I love it when I get to do it to other people. I love just watching total strangers do it to one another. It's complete surprise turned immediately into unrestrained joy. That's what happens here to this man. Jesus comes up to him in a crowd, finds him. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Think about this for a second. He was thrown out. He was thrown out by his neighbors and community. He was thrown out by his church. He was thrown out by his own parents. His own community kicked this man out, and there he was all alone. But Jesus found him. And he does the same for you and me. The implication of understanding, of seeing clearly why we suffer means that you and I will never, ever be alone. You will never be alone. Sad and bad things will happen to you in this life, but you will never be alone because by the waters of your baptism, Jesus has come to you and made you his very own. And now he will not let anything in this world separate to you. He comes to you again and again through his word and he chases you down and comes after you to grab you and make you his own and call you back to him again and again. He comes to you through the sacrament and he comes to you in a really tangible way in your mouth, in bread and wine. And he says, I am drawing you to me in you so that Christ, me, I might be displayed in you in your life. That is the implication of seeing clearly why we suffer. It is so that, it is the result that you and I are, are never alone. And that's what keeps your pastor up at night. I think that's, that's the one thing that I spend the most time praying about for each of you. It's your aloneness. Yeah, I referenced this before the sermon, but for the past 12 months, church has not looked like it used to. Some of the people are worshiping here. Some of the people are worshiping online. But there's distancing happening everywhere, and people are alone. Very many of you have made a really difficult decision to, to be safer at home, and it's an admirable decision. It was the wisest decision that you could have made for your health, for the health of your family, for the health of others. And while you're worshiping at home, you do, you engage with God's word. You come to the place where God draws you to himself, his word, in worship. But I'm preaching to the choir because those of you here, those of you worshiping at home, you know not everyone does that. Some people are 
are being distanced socially, but being distanced spiritually, and the result is spiritual blindness. They don't even see why all this suffering, all this, all this really difficulty that has been happening happens. The thing that God intends to draw you closer to himself, suffering, well, Satan's used it to, to divide and, and drive a wedge and push people further and further away. Permit the timely tangent there, because that's what I pray about for you. And it's really a germane question for each and every one of us. How do you suffer? How do you handle life when tragedy occurs? What do you do when the great reversals in life take place? Are you able to move confidently and clearly through life and through any trials that happen? Are you shaken so much to the point where you wonder if God has abandoned you or not? Look, suffering will happen. Trials and pain will happen. And we can't know why fully. We will never get the exact details or the explanation that will satisfy us enough. But what we do know is this. We have a God who is at his best when things are at their worst. And he's always by our side. He's always by our side, drawing us to him. Therefore, we are not timid and we are never alone. For it is through the anguish and the pain of his cross that he shows each and every one of you, you are my beloved. Amen. Amen.